that's us at our best, I think, is yeah. to face oblivion and on the way in, you know, still reach out and have, grasp a flower and give it to the friend who's uh, falling with you, you know. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Do you want to know how to diffuse from your thoughts, get better at accepting unwanted emotions, and get more clarity around your goals and values? Those are questions my guest today asks. His name is Stephen C. Hayes. He is an amazing thinker. He's prolific. He's written nearly 50 books, hundreds and hundreds of articles. He is an originator of ACT therapy, RFT, relational frame therapy, uh, an incredible thinker. Google Scholar Data ranks him among the top 1,500 most cited scholars in all areas of study, living and dead. His career has focused on human nature, language, cognition, and the application of this to an understanding and alleviation of human suffering. His latest popular book, although he's written a lot of academic and scholarly tomes, a book you might find readable and incredibly beneficial is called A Liberated Mind, How to Pivot Toward What Matters. In this book, Stephen talks about psychological flexibility, what it is, how we can cultivate it, why it matters, and how it can change our lives. We talk about something in this interview called the dictator within, how to give distance, how to get distance from it, not let it run our lives or ruin our lives. We talk about awareness and attention. We talk about the idea of evolving on purpose and so much more. And then as always, we get into a little bit about writing and how Stephen has been so prolific over the years, written millions and millions of words. And not just that he's produced a large quantity of content, but quality, meaningful content that has quite literally changed our world. And you can learn more about Stephen and his work at his website, stephenchays.com. With that, I hope you enjoy and benefit from this conversation with my new friend, Stephen C. Hayes. Steve, welcome to the School for Good Living. Well, thanks for having me here. I'm uh, really fascinated by what you do and looking forward to the time we spend together. Me too. Will you tell me, please, what is life about? Yeah, isn't that a question? And it's kind of cool that uh, that it distills down to that, that, that we're the creatures who get to look at our lives with that kind of reflective uh, question to guide it. I think it's about learning how to be you and how to contribute to the world in a way that fits with what you most deeply care about. And the journey that we're on is to show up as a conscious human being as part of these social primates called human beings and make some choices, answer that question about what are your values? What are the qualities of being and doing you want to put into your life's moments? What are you up to? What are you about? You know, life is finite and um, you're not going to be here forever. And so a good time to consider that question might be about now. And I think that's, uh, that's what we do is, is we learn how to be more fully ourselves 
but not in a selfish way. I think if you answer, if you look within at what you really want, uh, you know, you, you came here to um, make a difference and to play and work and support the lives of others in ways that are pro-social. I mean, I think we are in the right environments, inherently meant to be pro-social. And so um, in the wrong environments, we become greedy and we, or we, uh, start you know, wanting to tell other people what to do. And uh, we can slip into those other ways of being. But I think in, the, in more psychologically uh, supportive environments, we answer the question more in a way of how can I put my values into my moments and into the world? Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah, you talk about environment here and I'm really curious, what's your view of our responsibility or our ability to find an environment that supports us like that versus our responsibility or ability to create an environment like that? Yeah, we get to construct niches in the same way that you know species can construct niches and then evolve to fit that. We do that within our own lifetime and then evolve to fit that. And so it's a Another good question. What is the kind of world that you want to live in? Uh, want to is maybe the wrong word. I mean, want sounds like something that's missing. It actually was the etymology of the word means that. And it can sound needy and grabby and all that. But I mean, on the other side of that first question you asked, uh, what do you know about the environments that support you being who you came to be or who you want to be or your best self. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of us, for example, find that we're better in small groups than we are just left your own devices, that other people matter and uh, being part of loving, supportive, cooperative groups are critical to us. And that's not true for everyone. I mean, there are, you know, folks who um, sit in caves on the side of mountains and contemplate life and do something probably important in that way. But for most of us, our best selves involve other people. If you ask people what they really care about, almost always what they're about to say only makes fully full sense in the context of other people even if it's something like an aesthetic thing appreciating beauty or yeah but you want to share it yeah and most things you know i want to you know love cooperation support of others and so forth it's very close to our hearts that we want to be there for others and be part of the lives of others so that's an example how can you create a loving um social environment that is itself values-based itself has a purpose has meaning why not because it's imposed on us but because we establish it that way you know whatever that is whether it's well whatever that is yeah whatever we value whatever we value knowing full well 
that we're going to die. And not, not only that, but the whole universe is going to die. Knowing full well that in the end, it's a big ice ball. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty amazing that we're the one life form that is in, on this planet yeah. that is able to know that and still care. Yeah. Uh, that's Absolutely. pretty shocking and uh, wonderful. And uh, that's us at our best, I think, is yeah. to face oblivion and on the way in, you know, still reach out and uh, grasp a flower and give it to the friend who's uh, falling with you. You know, that, yeah. that we get to the kind of spit in the eye of the dinosaur that's about to eat us and um, say, this matters because I matter about it. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, your, I believe it's your most recent book, right? A Liberated Mind? Yeah. It's the most recent book. Most recent book that most people would run a read. I've written <laughs> like 47 of them, and, and the, yeah. but they're mostly very geeky books for scientists and stuff. But uh, I've done a few that normal folks can read in A Liberated Mind. the latest one of those. Yeah, so... This book, um, I do want to say thank you for writing it. I took away a lot from this book, and I suspect for people reading, it will be the kind of experience where you've put names to things that we maybe recognized but didn't really know, <laughs> or we yeah. didn't know we knew, and so forth. But I'm interested even in the title, right? Because the, the title, A Liberated Mind, How to Pivot Toward What Matters. So right in line with what we've been talking about. But right from the beginning, I'm interested because what is it, what is it that you're talking about being liberated from? That's yes. one thing I'd love to hear your take on. And the other is the idea of mind at all, yes. right? Because someone introduced me to this idea that the mind is, it's an abstraction. It's a concept. Yes, yes, it can be useful, but show me a mind, right? Like no one's ever seen a mind. So even from the beginning, when you talk about the title, liberated mind. Yeah, it's uh, we're you know, some of that is just trying to find a way to reach people before you have an opportunity to reach people. Yeah. So you're really trying to think of how could I get people interested in reading this book? And then in the book itself, I try to answer that uh, question and, and thank you for actually reading the book. Uh, it, it's uh, um, appreciated and it, it'll, I'm look, looking forward to seeing where it landed with you. But in terms of liberated from, ironically, I think what we're needing to work to liberate from, and I'll answer this question about what is mind even in a, in a, in a moment here, but because uh, the question is kind of twisted, uh, the answer is kind of twisted, but needing to be liberated from, I think, is a particular mode of mind or aspect of mind that comes to dominate us. In the book, I call it the dictator within, just to have a popular, accessible way of talking about it. But it's, you know, this evolutionary recent adaptation that you and I are doing right now is a couple as old as Homo sapiens. That's a couple hundred thousand, 300,000, 400,000. Probably the hominids doing it just based on Neanderthal's behavior and so forth. It probably goes back ways. But we know it can't go more than 2.8 million years because common ancestors are the chimpanzees. And chimpanzees don't do what your 12-month-old baby does, that if they don't do, they don't create what we call mind. And I think of mind as just that process of being able to create and use verbal rules uh, or 
uh, symbolically meaningful events that are based on this kind of repertoire of relational learning that is new for us. We're the only species that do it. And that takes a little bit of unpacking underneath ACT, the applied part of uh, uh, liberated mind is a basic science with several hundred studies in it on basically what is language? What is a word? What is a mind? What is symbolic reasoning? What are, you know, how does that happen? And how can you change it? And unlike lots of folks, you know, we actually get down to the point where you have a kid who doesn't talk, you have a kid who has, you know, severe, uh, you know, on the spectrum kinds of problems and so forth. And we might be able to help save that kid and uh, help then create a whole new set of problems. Uh, like what? Well, like what, uh, what happens when you are sufficiently verbal to be able to be guided by rules at the cost of other really important sources of information, your direct learning experience, your intuitive sense, your own biological heritage, the felt sense in your body, you know, to really be open to your history and how it echoes into the present moment, being able to observe and describe and use what those reactions are and allow them to inform a wiser journey over time. You get wiser because you have experience. Well, how do you access that experience? If you just access it through, I'm a person who's like this and blah, 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 blah. You know, you know, finish the first sentence before you start lying to yourself. <laughs> I mean, you're going to say something like, I'm a kind person always with everybody. You're lying. You know, and I came here to be loving and caring always. Dude, I mean, do you know how many people you've let down? Do you know how, have you thought about how you've let yourself down? Have you, I mean, you, you either have to be del deluded or, uh, to almost deliberately hide from yourself your full access to what your life has been. But when you do that, it's not about shame and blame. It's about learning and responsibility. It's about showing up responsibility in that sense of having an ability to respond, that you have the capacity to make some choices. So a liberated mind is liberated from the aspect of your mind that claims to be who you are and uh, claims to know the best and uh, is so pathetically bad at it. It can't even tell you how to walk or how to love or how to care. I mean, if you, if you demand, I, I've worked in rehab, you know, how do you walk? You know, we say, well, you pick up one foot and you put it in front of the other. Yeah. Well, how do you do that? You know, words are completely inadequate to it. If you already know how to do it, words can direct it. Yeah. But, you know, in rehab, you have bars to hold on to because you don't want to fall 110 times a day, which is what babies do when they're learning to walk. And you're bigger and it's hard, a harder fall. I can see why you'd want to. But they also do things like yell at their feet. They'll say things like, move, damn you, when you've had a stroke. Oh, your feet don't have ears. They don't give a damn what you're saying. Boom. Your legs don't care. You know, you learn to walk by trial and error. And it took thousands and thousands of falls, thousands. You know, an average toddler will fall 110 times a day while walking 10 football fields, equivalent of walking. Oh, day after day after day after day before some moment happens, you know, where they begin to actually get their feet in front of them as they fall. 
my point being, we learn by experience, but we also have developed this other system and being liberated from it means to be able to put it on a leash. And ironically, the liberated mind is, a, is restrained in its excesses in certain areas. And that sounds contradictory, but it's not. In the same way that freedom involves responsibility. You know, if, if I were talking about, you know, a liberated body, I wouldn't say, and that get, means you get to eat Cheetos and cotton candy all day long. No, it doesn't. Your body will soon inform you that there's a cost to that. Yeah. And in the same way, a liberated mind is one that knows how to restrain the excesses. But liberated to do what? Well, if you were your whole person, if you were able to use these marvelous evolutionary recent adaptations of language and cognition, of higher symbolic reasoning, higher cognition that has allowed you and I to talk over a space of several hundred miles instantaneously having a conversation where, you know, just 15 years ago, couldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, 50 years ago, couldn't imagine it. You know, other than maybe a few science fiction writers or something, really weirdos, just a few people could even imagine 100 years ago, even not that them or 200, yeah. you know, so liberated to do what? To be, to answer that first question, who are you? In a way that allows you to create a life that actually um, steps up to what you have been given, steps up to the opportunity, to what your parents and the culture and life and, and the thousands and thousands of humans before you that led just to your physical body, but also the opportunities that you have to be whole and free and to make a difference in the world while also knowing that in the end, it's a big ice ball. So uh, how to pivot towards what matters only happens when you can let go of your problem-solving mind that's constantly telling you who you are, how you need to be, and, and teaches you to grasp, to avoid, to cling. Now, this one little piece where you said, yeah, but show me, it's not even there, it's an abstraction. Yeah, but you know what? You can't show me anything that isn't. I'm, I'm enough of an evolutionist to know that when you see a snake, you didn't see a snake. You just evolved in such a way to avoid dying. You don't know what you're seeing. Oh, I'm seeing the it's this long. It has that shape. No, you don't know that. Evolution will produce cheats. It's like the operating system on your computer. You know, files are blue rectangles that if you drag into the trash can, disappear. No, they're not blue. They're not rectangular shape. They don't have a color or a shape at all. But if you had to deal with the strings of ones and zeros that are what an operating system is and the files that they access, you'd be looking at millions of ones and zeros, a screen full of them. You wouldn't be able to do anything. So what they really are, we say, is ones and zeros. Of course, that's a metaphor. There's no ones. There's no zeros. Yeah. In, in the machines we're talking to right now. And your operating system simplifies it in such a way that you can avoid doing things like destroying this particular sequence of non-ones and zeros that aren't really ones and zeros that we call ones and zeros to talk about how this machine works so that we have to have files. 
Well, the same thing could be true of the snake. It could be more like the movie The Matrix, and there's only a few people that see the cascading green letters, or maybe no one. So if you actually do the, and people have done this, Donald Hoffman's book on the case against reality, uh, check it out. Pretty interesting book. You know, if you allow evolutionary algorithms in multiple runs to see what happens if you get real information about the world from your perceptual system or cheats, the cheats win every time, every time. For the same reason that you don't, you prefer an operating system that is graphical even versus alphanumeric. And you certainly don't prefer machine code. Yeah. Nobody preserves machine code. <laughs> yeah. Nobody but Neo, right? <laughs> yes. Neo can deal with the machine code. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, and I'm out of a philosophy, a wing called functional contextualism. That is a form of radical pragmatism. That is a form of evolutionary epistemology that basically says all of these natural science things that we know about in, that, in, in life sciences have to apply to your own behavior. And once you go there, and some of my evolutionary friends, the David Sloan Wilsons of the world and so forth, who will go with me until we get to this last part. Thank goodness there's books like Donald Hoffman now where I can put them in front of them and say, answer that. You know, but uh, I don't believe that language is about anything because I don't believe in things. I believe in the one world. Even atoms, molecules, no, 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 we don't know. We don't know that those are the things. It is a useful way to interact in and with the one world. And so language, certainly, these categories, you, me, well, where do you and me end? I mean, can I do just a tiniest rant around this? I know I'm getting off an abstract line. I'm probably losing some people. That's but if all right. you the people that are listening, this is perfect for. So okay, great. all good. If you pick up an object and you say, this is it, you know, here's the chapstick and the edge is right here. Well, wait a minute. You saw it based on light impacting your retina, or so we say. So is the light from it part of it? How about the heat? How about gravity? Can you point to some place in the universe where this it isn't and you can't right you can't do it well if this was everywhere where is it you know you may be living inside chapstick right now how the hell would you know you're only going to know by these edges so don't let the mind there's another example talk about liberated mind don't let the mind this set of symbolic abilities that create categories with firm edges. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm dealing with a dog or a cat and I look at stimulus generalization gradients around this object, shape, color, size, etc., it'll be a fuzzy bell-shaped curve, except for human beings. It'll be a top hat. It'll be, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't, it is, it is, it is, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't. You take anything, blue, a chair, anything. That's a delusion, dude. That's imposed on your sensory system. Our sensory system doesn't work in top hat forms. You know, and that's why, you know, people who are artists, for example, can see colors you can't see. 
because they have so many experiences of dealing with color in a way that's softer and fuzzy. And they're careful even about the names. They're careful about shoving them into categories. They don't want to do paint by numbers. They use metaphors. I mean, you talk to musicians, artists, filmmakers, poets. They don't want to talk in those kind of top hat categories. They talk about their work in a, in a metaphorical way. Why? Because it's a way that we know how to create these fuzzy sets that allow us to be more sensitive uh, to these nuances of emotion and felt sense and so perception and so beauty, and, you know, symmetry, you name it. But the same connect, we can do that. We, we can get lost in it, but we can do that with our own mind in ways that allow us to fit what we care about and what we know how to do to our life's moments. And that is the kind of responsible freedom that I'm talking about with liberation. So even the concept of mind, I'm absolutely with you. Don't ontologize it. Don't grasp to it. Don't hold on to it. But don't do that with anything that's in a liberated mind. When I supervised my students about ACT, the methods that try to change those processes that are in there, they'll all confirm that uh, every once in a while, out of nowhere, I'd suddenly stop and say, and by the way, don't believe any of this. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's funny. I have, um, when I share things I've learned with others, um, some of the people who are close to me and kind of collaborators and, and helpers will often say, would you quit telling people that that might not be true? <laughs> it's like, well, don't a, don't believe it because I said it and B, you know, trust your own experience and be open to the possibility or, or believe that it's probably. Yeah, that's awesome. And in fact, you know, we're headed towards a world in which a pragmatic view of truth is going to be the mainstream view of truth. It's very tricky. And not only that, but one that fits you as an individual. We're used to now, and we have whole entire generations who had, get to have the music app that will fit the music that they like. They don't understand about the algorithms that do it, but it does it. They're used to having it their way. It's not just you know, a, a hamburger chain that says you can have it your way. You can have everything your way. Yeah. Do you know that the word normal didn't exist in the human language and, and wasn't hardly used until the Civil War? I didn't know that. And do you know that the word, the statistical reason, they, by the way, average, typical, usual, also the same trajectory. Go to Google Amgram, put it in normal and just look at it and you'll be shocked. And why is such a central concept? Because we didn't have this just for you view. And then along came the statisticians who said, and the whole culture went, oh, my God. And they'd have competitions. Who's the most average woman? Do you know Saturday Evening Post had competitions? Who's the most average woman? No. And they won prizes. Wow. If they had the exact measurements. They were fascinated with this idea of average. Yeah, but you know what? Uh, just to show you some of the dark history of that, <clears throat> Carl Pearson R.A. Fisher, monsters in statistics. You can't do a Pearson's correlation or a Fisher's Z, a T-test that you know anything about stats without, you know, these important mathematicians and statisticians. Do you know what their titles were at the University of College London? Those no. two professors of eugenics. 
And you just read, uh, you know, our Carl Pearson, our Fisher saying we shouldn't let Jews come to the United Kingdom, even as, you know, the Holocaust was starting to form because on average, we're depleting the gene pool. Or that we should pass laws to not allow criminals to have children or black people to breed. So enough of this. I mean, this Black Lives Matter movement that we're in is something more like that we have to respect individuals in their individual context. And we need even new ways of thinking. We don't even have words. You don't have a word to go instead of normal, it's this word to speak about what are the things within your lifetime that really empower you to allow you to be that best person. And that, yeah, some of those apply to other people too, but not everybody. Yeah. The average on top of people doesn't fit. I'm in a bit of a rant, but can I give an example? Yeah, please. In the area I work in, in clinical psychology, you know, we have these categories called major depression, panic disorder, et cetera. I've been in one of those categories. I'm a panic disorder person in recovery, so I say. Okay, so here's an example. A huge multi-site trial in major depression called the STAR-D trial. Multi-multi-million dollar NIMH-funded trial some years ago, but a really important one, one of the biggest ever done. 4,000 patients. How many different kinds of constellations of signs and symptoms? There's only a limited set. It's not very big that can go into that diagnosis. How many different combinations were in those 4,000? Answer is 1,100. How many people had a constellation that was so rare, so unusual, so atypical that only one-tenth of 1% of the entire group were like them? In other words, four or fewer people were like them. Mm. The answer is more than a half. Wow. We're living inside a world designed by eugenicists to sort people yeah. or to put people on the Ford factory line and make them through management silence, Taylorism. Taylor, who invented this, applying the averages, exactly how long does it take to screw that down? And if you don't, if the, here's a standard deviation, you're outside, then you're, you ought to be ranked and yanked and sent away for, you know, it's really this harsh world of fitting people to machines. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a lie. There is no average. Normal intelligence is a lie personality theories are a lie. Uh, diagnoses of psychiatric illness is a lie. And we don't even have a word for the alternative. But we instinctively say, this is why it isn't he and she anymore. Yeah, It's he, she, and they, and it's not going to be just that. There's 16 different kinds of gender. Yeah, I heard this Peter who recognizes 37 Yes, exactly. Like, wow. And I have people who want different gender pronouns in personal relationships, work relationships, and, and you have to keep track of that. They expect that. Well, you don't like that? Too bad. You're in a different world. And so this rant was about we don't even know how to talk about 
the things we know that answer the kind of questions you're asking. Yeah. Uh, my colleague, Stefan Hoffman, and I invented a new term a couple weeks ago. I was talking to him just before you about, about instead of normal, the, the term we invented is idiomic. We need idiomic concepts, ones that are ideographic, but then, yes, apply to multiple people, maybe not very many. But why? Because we can't have everything being the psychology of the one. But the world where we're headed is an exciting world where you really get to be you in a more dramatic way. And um, we can really start focusing on how to fit work to you, not how to fit you to work. Uh, how to create the kind of environments that sustain and support you in your values-based journey, not one size fits all hmm. uh, categories and solutions. Um, it, we'll see where it goes, but I, uh, uh, um, the ontological wrap I just, I gave earlier and now this ideographic wrap means that, some of these questions have to be thought about, about the normative categories of questioning yeah. in which we're constructing our lives, which also need to change. Yeah, I, it totally resonates with me and uh, this idea that so much of our experience, what we even perceive, right? The perception that we even have, the cognitive filters that we have, how much language influ influences or limits that. And you talk about something, you use a term just a, a few minutes ago about the dictator within. And that was an example for me of what I was saying when you like, you gave words to an experience or a phenomenon that, that, that I have. I know many people have, but you also, the whole book, I think basically is about something, right? You give a name to psychological flexibility. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that if I think people understand, if people practice some of the things you teach around psychological flexibility, it really is. I believe the kind of thing that can transform one's experience of life. Yes. Right. What, what do you mean by this term psychological flexibility? Why, do, and why does it matter? Well, it essentially what we've tried to do in the wing of research work that I'm out of is to build a psychology that in basic processes that are by the way, idiomic because of how they were developed, uh, we get the smallest set of processes. By a process, I mean just things that you can do, the sequence of things that you do in the area of thought, attention, um, emotion, sense of self, motivation, and overt behavior, these dimensions of living. Uh, the smallest set that does the most things that would allow you to be the best person and to pursue your values, that allow you to pivot towards what matters. And it turns out that it's not an infinitely large set. I mean, the, the, you can get a lot with just six concepts. There's other ones that are close and that I might want to, and you have to socially extend it. So you go in to things that are the social extensions of those six, but you can basically take most of what we know about how we get from here to there in the area of pathology, yes, but also prosperity uh, uh, using this set of processes. 
and, and uh, right, I'll say what they are. So, huh? sorry, Steve, I just, I just want to interrupt my own question for a moment to, to call attention to something that I thought was really cool too, which is again, in the subtitle of the book to pivot, how to pivot toward what matters this idea that we can in any moment pivot. We don't need to wait for a crisis or a trauma or to hit rock bottom. Although we often, <clears throat> excuse me, we often do, we often do. <laughs> but even the idea that it's possible for us right now to right pivot now. and take our life in a different direction, I think is a really wonderful thing. Boy, yeah. And you know, I, and I use the metaphor of pivot and I say, how long does it take for you to be headed in this direction and then pivot and now you're headed in a different direction. How long does that take? Well, it takes an instant. And that is true always. And part of the metaphor of pivot is the energy, the yearning, the need, what you really want that's inside, even the worst things you do, the things that are squeeze you down the most, that ossify you the most, that make you rigid, insensitive, What's inside, even those, is a precious resource that can be put in a new direction in an instant. If you just know enough to see what are you really yearning for, how did you get into a situation where the harder and harder you work, the less and less it works, the, the more you try, the less you get. How did you get trapped? And how can you turn that energy in a new direction? And you want the energy of your pain and suffering and of a life not well lived because inside that energy is also the yearning you have for something else. You didn't jump out of the womb saying, hey, I want to suffer. Hey, I want to be an addict. Hey, I want to you know, be alone all the time and I want to have my relationships trashed. Yeah, I want a life full of self-defeating behaviors. I want to sabotage yeah. every good intention I ever have, right? Nobody yeah. You didn't jump out of the womb that way. Yeah. You learned how to be that way by doing logical, reasonable, sensible, and pathological things. I mean, you followed the problem-solving strategies that occurred to you and that had been taught to you and that you saw around you. And you internalized those and... And it's, here's the sad thing. When you did them, it seemed to work. Yeah, and you often while, rewarded, avoided punishments. Yeah, it was reinforced. a little while. So you got trapped by smaller sooner, which trumps larger later every time. We evolved for that. You know, smaller sooner is what guides behavior. And, you know, as a panic disordered person, a recovery, good example you know, if I'm, I'm rocking and rolling with panic, I'm an academic, I'm supposed to give talks. And if I get an opportunity to do that, my graduate students will give the talk. And that means I'm a good teacher and I'm really supportive of my graduate students. And by the way, I feel a whole lot relieved when I hung up that phone knowing I do not have to give that talk. Did I just become less of a panic disordered person or more of a panic? Well, I'm more. I just fed the same tiger that's, you know, eating everything off my plate. And that tiger's growing. It's getting bigger. It's demanding more and more. And eventually, you know, in my personal story, which is in the liberated mind. And in a TED Talk that's quite powerful. In a TED Talk that you can access that uh, have a couple. And the first one, uh, bit.ly, Steve's first TED will get you there. Capitalize Steve first and T-E-D with a bit.ly link. 
um, I tell that personal story. And uh, it came to the point where it, I couldn't give a lecture to five undergraduates. And then eventually I couldn't even trust sleep. You know, there was no safe place left before finally it occurred to me to pivot in a 180 degree direction. And I did it in an instant, but it changed my life. I mean, it, and it's not so grand. It's, you know, something like 90% of the human population say they've had spiritual experiences. And usually the mind will quickly run in and say, oh, I, now I understand that. That's why, and they'll ruin it. But, you know, because this, the overextension of this problem-solving agenda will do it. But back to psychological flexibility. What is it? Let me say it in three, there's six things, but I'll first say it in three things. But it's really one thing. Uh, I'll start with the middle. In order to really live a powerful, successful life, you need to be able to be aware of what's going on inside and out and to attend to what's important. That contains two things. There's a part of you that's just awareness, that's beyond categorization. It starts with that moment when your mama looked in your eyes and said, oh, you sweet baby, and you dumped natural endorphins. You said, woohoo, you know, you're the social primate. We evolved to be connected. Consciousness is part of our legacy and it's built out by language, but uh, you're aware and you can attend and you can attend by broadening or narrowing, shifting or staying. You, you, there are things going on in your room right now or wherever you are right now that you haven't been attending to look around. You'll see them. If I asked you to look around, see all the things that are brown and spend several seconds doing that. And then ask you to close your eyes and quick, tell me all the things that are red It'll, it'll have inhibited that. You, you, you'll be lower than chant than you were if I just said, look around and then ask you to close your eyes and say, tell me all the things that are red. Why? Because you can direct your attentional processes and you want to be able to do that. There's a myriad of things to focus on. So, and why would that matter? Well, if you're going to evolve on purpose, if you're going to get better over time, if you're going to create a life worth living, if you're going to be the person you want to be, you're going to have to pick and choose what's of importance in this moment, in this moment, in this moment. Well, what do you mean of importance? Well, for, for, for one thing, what should be attended to, right? And for another thing, attended to in a way that you are aware, because you've all only half attended, you know, in this year of COVID, you've been on those talks where you've multitasked. And then it stops and they ask you a question. And you go, I, I did that once. That only happened. <laughs> you liar. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so we know we divide our attention, you know, and so forth. You know, awareness doesn't hold what's there to be received, you know. So you may not know what you're feeling, what your body's doing, what other people are doing. You may not know what's going on. So you need to, those, those things. Those are two flexibility processes. Why flexibility processing? Meaning if you want to expand and direct your repertoire, if you want to, you know, they're important. How about your history and how it shows up? Well, it shows up in multiple ways, but there's two big chunks here. The emotions, sensations, intuitive felt sense, and the words that show up with this more evolutionarily recent stream of symbolic thought. 
Well, you need the skills to be able to feel those things in a way that are sufficiently open to allow your past to echo into the present, but are not so dominant that you immediately run away when something shows up, or you immediately cling, oh, that's wonderful, I have to have only that. Now, cutting yourself off from things that are not that. In the area of emotion and felt sense, that means a certain kind of emotional openness. Of, of being able to go with the ebb and flow of felt sense and emotion. In the area of thought, it means categorical, symbolic thought. It means a stepping back enough and to notice that you're thinking and not just notice the product of your thinking. If I'm holding up that chapstick and I, and I tell you, actually this flavor in here is horrible. It's strawberry. I don't know even why I was given it. I certainly didn't buy it. It's the only thing I've got. I'm putting it on my lips because I get chapped otherwise, but it's disgusting. It's awful. I hate it. Okay. This disgusting chapstick you're talking about, where does disgusting go when you die? It's a secondary attribute, right? Plato's secondary characteristics. It's one that emerges in your interaction with it, right? But when thought shows up, it's so fast that it looks like, yeah, it's about half the length of a pencil. It's made of plastic. It's white and it's disgusting. Those are radically different things, dude. Other than philosophy 101, if I die tomorrow, whatever aspect of reality this is, back to our snake thing, I presume it's still there, but disgusting is gone. So here's the point. You want to be able to back up from thought just enough to notice that you're thinking, you're categorizing, you're reasoning, you're predicting, you're comparing, you're doing all that kind of stuff. That's cool. Now, use your attentional skills. What in all of that is useful to you right now? What and all that is helpful to you right now? And the rest of it, could we respectfully decline our mind's invitation to really focus on and deal with that? Because after all, especially as you just begin to get into this, you realize that you're of two minds about everything. And by the way, it's not two, it's three, and it's not three, it's 10, it's not 10, it's 100. You've got thousands of voices within. You're like a mayor of a city. And if you ever try to do one thing like, I'm a good person. You'll hear your mind say, no, you're not. What about that? Okay, I'm a disgusting, I'm the worst of the worst. I'm the lowest of the low. Well, you're not that bad. You know, goofy with horns and goofy with a halo is something that three and four-year-olds understand. This is, you have multiple minds about everything. So instead of climbing into the clown suits that your mind gives you, could we back up a little bit and notice that your mind is minding? You're constructing, you're reasoning, you're thinking, you're categorizing. And sometimes you'll even catch, boy, that's mama's voice. You'll actually catch where it came from. Oh. You know, that's dad's workaholism or whatever. Yeah. All right. So open to our thoughts aware of what's going on in the present moment 
And with that flexibility, what do we want to do? Attend to what brings meaning and purpose to us by choice and how to build habits around that. So actively engaged in building a values-based life. Psychological flexibility or being open, aware, and actively engaged in living. Each of those three has two aspects. You know, attentional processes and just the aware person, openness to emotions, etc., and also openness to thought in a different way, reigning in that kind of categorical thought. And then engaged both in the sense of choosing the intrinsic motivators that we're going to put in our life and over and over and over again, building and expanding habits of action around that. Now, why is that important? Because everywhere the human mind goes, all those six processes are important. And when you get all six of them rolling, it's like a strong box with six sides. If I take a couple sides out of a box, it's not a box anymore. And you get all floppy and soggy like. And so if you're not working on your emotional openness or your cognitive flexibility, you're not able to learn from your past. If you're not working on being able to attend to the moment with a flexible, fluid, and voluntary way from this point of awareness, you're not able to fit uh, innovations to context. And if you don't have values, you don't know what the selection criteria are, and you don't know how to retain them through repetition and larger patterns. And if you notice I'm changing the words, it's because those processes of healthy variation fitted to contexts that are selected and retained is how life evolves. Evolution requires variation, selection, retention, and context at the right dimension and level. It requires those six things. And that's true of you as an evolving human being. It's true of species. It's true of cultures. It's, you know, and so, you know, nothing in our psychology makes sense except in light of evolution. And a, a multidimensional, multilevel evolutionary approach tells you you can evolve on purpose. You can actually do that. I don't care that evolutionists hate that. No, you can't evolve. It's all random variation. No, it's not random variation. It started as random variation. Bacteria, when you take away amino acids they need, will suddenly vary massively because they take the restraints off of replication and correction to keep things in a line. They start throwing chaos at it because otherwise they're going to die. They don't have the amino acid. Evolvability evolves. So it, it started random. It's not random now. And with our verbal symbolic abilities, what you and I are doing right now, if you know the processes that allow you to evolve powerfully and why they do it and learn those skills, sorry for the long rant, but the bottom line message there, the great message there, the thing that's in a liberated mind is that when you solve one issue, you have the micro skills at some strength to solve the next one and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Why? Because psychological flexibility matters everywhere you go because it's about how to manage this minding process of our own history and the current context in a way that serves what you really want. And that's really what you want. So that's cool. And Western science can help. So. All right. 
Well, thank you. Really like a rant more than a conversation. Slap the old man and either that or give me a rocking chair so I can just rock. <laughs> now, I just, rock uh, rant. I just don't want to jump in and, and interrupt the the flow. And uh, as I'm listening, I'm thinking already, man, I'm I know I'm going to listen to this multiple times. Like I'm going to read the transcript and you know already. And I suspect people who are interested in this uh, will will find value in that as well. So yeah. Um, but I'll work on uh, I'll work on making this more of a conversation. I'll interrupt. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. We've, we've laid the foundation. Yeah. So, and, and I think I have just one more question before we move to the enlightening light round. I think two actually. Um, but I do want to share this as well, which is I told you again um, some of the value, some of the huge value I got from from your book. This this idea, and you just talked about it. This term diffusion. Yeah. Right? About separating and creating that awareness, creating that space, recognizing when we're thinking. I, I, I wasn't familiar with that term, but I love that term. And, and then in the book, I really appreciate that you give a number of practices yeah. that we can, we can try out to, to recognize. And, and I don't know when I first learned that I had that little voice within, but I remember being in a room, a large group awareness training, right? And the facilitator talked about it and didn't use the word, you know, the dictator within, but something like that. And I remember one woman, she's probably 50, when she got that she had a little voice in her head, a little narrator, she gasped. Like she didn't know five decades of living, wasn't aware it was there. And I thought, people don't know they have that. <laughs> it, was, it was really interesting. But even, even though I was aware I had it, I, I got a lot of value from the book in seeing these different things, whether we sing the thought, right? You talk about the one that I've tried out and it's been interesting in the last couple of weeks is naming, giving the mind a name. Right. Will you, will you talk about that a little bit? Why, like, what is the idea behind it and, and what is the value people might find from trying it? Well, you with other people speaking anyway, do have a little bit of distance, a little separation. You notice the person's scheme of thought and so forth with your own. It just shows up with such a familiar voice. that even tells you I'm you I mean, it literally almost say those words without me or nothing, etc. So this is a very arrogant part of us. almost to claim the whole of us. And giving in the mind a name immediately clicks you into a part of your repertoire that allows you to have a little bit of separation just so that enough microseconds happens. So there's a moment of choice about what you do with a particular thought. And diffusion is a process that avoids the automatic domination of thought so that these other things that are of importance, such as current context and values and so forth, can play such as these other sources of behavior regulation, your direct history, your felt sense, your intuition, et cetera. Not in a magical, mystical way. Those are just words we have for really reliable sources of information. I mean, if take somebody who goes uh, home with an unsafe person and is then abused, people who've been abused are more likely to have that happen. And it's because they've, in order to, avoid the pain of the past abuse. They haven't been open to that information. And so you can close it off to, at your cost. But the giving of my name is a good one because uh, you can do it in a matter of seconds that I would just suggest. Yeah. If, you're, if you know, you can get kind of mindy with yourself and you can sometimes let 
your chatter in your head pull you in a direction that doesn't necessarily pay off. And in hindsight, you kind of see, I should have known better or that this was a cul-de-sac or, oh my God, I've gotten a relationship. That's the same kind of relationship I've been in before. How did I do that? There's repetitive things where you didn't mean to be in the wrong job or with the right and wrong person or whatever, but yet again, you're there. You didn't mean for that addiction to get a toehold. It was just one cigarette. Why did I, et cetera. You know, you really want to be able to catch. And a simple thing, just give your mind a name. If you're not sure what to name it, you can call it Mr. Mind or Ms. Mind. Now, mine's called George. I know. I know why. And so what does George have to say? You know, uh, thank you, George. Thank you for trying to help me. I've got this covered. Is there anything else you have to share with me? Okay, thank you. Thank you. And, and, and it's not trying to hurt you, so it's worth a thanks. But it's pretty stupid about lots of things. And so you don't turn your life over to George and you don't constantly listen to George. I mean, you've had kids in the back seat when you're driving a, your station wagon and they're arguing constantly. You're not going to listen to them either. Or you're going to have an awful drive. There are times you just sort of, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're not going to, because you know, you know what that rap is. And it's like old couples, you know, <clears throat> You, they, you know, you name the raps, you're about to do number two, you know, you name the jokes, you know, yeah. you know your mind's going to give you the I'm not good enough rap. Yeah. Or well, is it going to give you the if only rap? And it's it such a, like a trip for me because, I, I, again, like where these thoughts come from when I thought, okay, I'll try it. I'll give my mind a name. And then I was like, what should I name it? And then, of course, it's the mind giving the name. <laughs> so immediately the thing was Ringo. Like Ringo, you know, I don't even like the Beatles all that much. I, I, I mean, not, some of their music is pretty amazing, I think. But all that, and I'm like, where did Ringo come from? What do I know about Ringo? I'm like, he's kind of an eccentric one. You know that? Okay, that works. And so forth. And, and so I settled on that. And then I'm going along. And I thought, I think the thought was, I want to eat ice cream. And then I go, oh, well, that's Ringo who <laughs> says I want to eat ice cream. And then I'm like, no, I don't. But then it was the trip was, who is saying that? Because yeah. does my body want it? Does my spirit want it? Like, does something else want it? And was like, is the mind over here? My body's going this way. And it was like, it was really a strange phenomenon. Well, you know, this is the back to the, you're the mayor of the city. Yeah. You know, and, and just in the written record, you know, Julian James, uh, Origin of Consciousness, and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, an old book, but we're still aware with reading. I knew Julian, actually, he's dead now, but the crazy old coot. And wonderful uh, man. But, you know, in the written record, we would experience these kind of thoughts as voices in our heads. You know, the oracles of Delphi didn't seem strange to anybody. Right now, we'd say, who the hell are you talking about? You're hearing the voice. Please, no. Back then, everybody heard voices. And you had restrictions. You were not supposed to say God's name. Well, why? For the same reason that at Little League, you don't get to say swing in from the stands. The umpire will come over and throw you out if you do that, because little kids can't help but swing when you say swing. <laughs> it's unfair because, you know, they haven't yet learned how to inhibit the command effects of, of language. And so it's all over our culture, you know, the, how powerful that is. And it's in your, your own individual history. And, but then you disappear into it. In the modern world, we actually so empower that voice and we put it on steroids with science and technology and the ability to sort of 
you know, dial into just our own favorite streams and so forth with this ideographic world we're now in. That it's, uh, if you don't know how to rein it in, you're in some trouble. And not just that way. You know, it isn't just that. Can I say something that I think of? In the past, only the most spiritually aware and thoughtful people would be thinking about what's happening on the other side of the planet right now, or what's going to happen in future generations, or this whole extension of time, place, and person that produces kind of an oceanic awareness that we're all part of a big system, and what happens in one area influences everything. That's actually so, I think. And it's only the most advanced and spiritual. Now it's not that. Now it's anybody with Twitter. Anybody. Yeah. I know what the infection rate was with COVID in Brazil yesterday. My wife's Brazilian. I follow it. You know, I know what time it is right now in the UK and in Australia. And by the way, in two hours, I can have a meeting that will have all three of those places in the meeting, but not now because it's too early. Australia is three in the morning of the next day. So we're produced a world where you have a constant diet of pain. You can see any sick thing that happens instantaneously. Somebody throws their kids off a bridge. You can see it. You know, people live stream their mass shootings now. Pain, judgment, constant flow of judgment and comparison. That person has gold-plated doorknobs, you know. Or or a jet, like the the royal family's jets that are gold everything inside. Yeah, absolutely. And their Instagram posts look so lovely. Yeah. And, and I look at my lives and likes on every post and and likes. content of the post. So you got exposure to, t- to pain, judgment, and comparison. At the same time, you've got an expansion of consciousness that didn't happen before, except by extraordinary reading, education, and spiritual work, so that you're carrying an expanded awareness across time, place, and person. Yeah. And normal is break- broken down. It's now up to you. Even what's true, what's false, what you're up to, you know, wow. That means our kids have got to be like baby Buddhas tomorrow. And instead, we're feeding, feeding them, you know, if you have the right beer, the right house, the right money, the right thing, you know, enough money. It's a, we're feeding them crap. We're feeding them cotton candy bullshit. And we're reaping the wind for it. You know, the suicide rates, the anxiety, depression, so substance abuse in the midst of plenty. Yeah. You know, lower violence, lower malnutrition, better everything except mental and behavioral health. It's like a mockery. You know, the, we've solved all our problems and we're worse off. So, uh, gosh, I'm in another rant. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I know that, as you said, time but diffusion, let me just figure it. Diffusion. Okay. If you can't, from this point of awareness, rein in the excesses of the logical, symbolic, reasoning, problem solving mind, all of those challenges will be mishandled. And you don't have a prayer of being more emotionally open in the present, focused on your values. You can't afford it. You're still trying to 
figure out what's really capital T truth, or you don't even know you're doing it. You disappeared into it like that 50-year-old who just woke up to the voice within. Oh. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Well, before we move on um, to the enlightening landing round, I know we've covered so much and there's so much more we could. Um, I'm curious, by the way, some of my guests know how many words they've written. Do you happen to have any idea of you arrested <laughs> how many words? No, I know it's many, many, many. It's got to be millions. Many millions, but uh, I don't know how big it is. So there's, there's 47 books and almost 700 articles. It's a lot. That's amazing. Well, is there anything else in this conversation that you think might be of service to the listener? Anything else, whether it's in a liberated mind or, or in your work, something that's fascinating you presently, anything before we transition? Well, it's hard to be human. And I think we're on a journey and you can see around us the stumbling that we're doing culturally, but you can also see around us the courage and creativity that is there. And if I'm going to bet, I'm betting on humanity. You know, I'm betting we do manage the immigration crisis and the inequities and the climate change crisis and the racism that's there, that we, the tribal primates evolve so that the tribe is all of us. And we find a way to cooperate and to focus on what's important. And um, we've done that in so many ways. And now it's time to do that with our own psychology and the cultural extensions of that. And behavioral science is the, the weakling at the door. All these advances that we have with our technology and so forth is physical sciences. And even when we have challenges like COVID and so forth, the psychologists are there to talk about, oh, you're depressed, but they're not there to talk about how we can get people to wear masks. But they can be. I posted a study about that I'd done 30 years ago that had a huge effect on mask wearing. Um, but, you know, so I don't want to turn it over to traditional psychology, but I do want to say, let's work together to use the best of us and, and, our traditions that allow us to step up to human complexity without reductionism, that use science for the best of us, and that, you know, gives proper attention, due weight to those things that are in our novels and in our poems and in our music, this yearning for meaning and purpose and being whole human beings. We can, we can figure this thing out. We can, we can learn how to do this, but we're gonna, it's going to take time. It's going to take all the hands on deck. Yeah. And we all, yeah, as you're saying, we all have a part to play. You all have a part to play. Yeah. It's beautiful. When you move, you know what, can I, if you move like on this psychological flexibility, mm -hmm. your children move, your coworkers move. It goes at least four steps out. The people, you know, the, the people they know and the people they know all statistically reliably move when you move. And so if you want to predict whether or not your kids are going to be having those problems or not work on yourself, work on your own psychological flexibility, because that what most predicts whether or not they will step up to their challenges because they're watching you. And that parental thing of, you know, don't do as I do, do as I say is bullshit. That's yeah. not what happens. So uh, it's all of our responsibility to be the best human beings we know how to be. And as we do that, we empower we change the world as we do that. Yeah. I love that. And I know we didn't talk about it and I won't 
go, won't ask you to go into it, now, <laughs> but the, the whole thing about relational frame theory, you know, and to yeah. me, just a little bit that I've learned about indigenous traditions and about how all things really are interconnected and everything exists in relation. There's something very profound, very, very profound about that. You dig into psychological flexibility and you fight, start finding monks and uh, indigenous peoples. And, you know, so, and I love that. And what I say, it's like coming into a clearing and it's beautiful, it's spectacular, it's wonderful. And you saw nobody on your path, but when you get there, there's like scores of people in the clearing and they had many different paths to get there. And I say, this must be an important place. I don't say my way is the only way, you know? So, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of cool that scientists are in there now with places that only the, the monks were there. And as I just said, our kids are being asked through the change in consciousness that has happened from that incredibly powerful computer you carry in your pocket are being asked to have a mindset that only the most advanced human beings on the planet used to have and to be tempted to really horrifically horrible ideas about how to manage that. So, uh, boy, uh, I think we might find a lot of people in that clearing. Yeah. I love that. That reminds me to what you're saying both about the, the kids and the network and, and, and what our younger generations are being asked or challenged to do. Um, something I read that Buckminster Fuller wrote about our children are our elders in universe time because they enter a universe which is more fully formed than the one that we came into. Exactly. Like, that's awesome. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, being mindful of time here, uh, we'll go to the enlightening lightning round. Again, a series of questions and on sure. a variety of topics. Before we go there, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And I, I have the time. I have a hard stop at the top of the hour, but you can okay. go beyond if you want to. Yeah, we'll be. <clears throat> okay. Question number one. Yeah. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. <laughs> Life is like a. A journey towards a lighthouse in the distance. Okay. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing a question uh, the, that I learned from Peter Thiel, the technologist and inventor. He asks, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Our thoughts are not about mapping on to what is capital T truth. It's about creating a way forward that allows us to accomplish what's of importance to us. Okay. Thank you. Question number three. If you were required, I know this might be a stretch, but if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Love isn't everything. It's the only thing. Okay. Which it's I just on every email I send. I was just about to say, I wanted to point out a couple of things about that, that that's in your email signature, as is your home phone number and your cell number. Which Isn't I thought that crazy? Was pretty, pretty brave and pretty generous. My wife scolds me on occasionally. I do get crazy calls, but surprisingly few. Yeah. Okay. Question number four. What book other than one of your own, which I don't know if you've thought of it this way, but you've now written just about one book for every year of your adult life. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but setting those aside, 
What book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Oh, Walden too, actually. B.F. Skinner's Utopian Novel. Why that book? Uh, it's misunderstood horribly and doesn't always land well, but it, it uh, is the core of my journey of, uh, you know, if you go to the, the group that's developing ACT, they have a motto, creating a behavioral science more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. And what this rat running weirdo in the lab wrote about early on in his academic career is what if we could create behavioral principles that are so precise and broadly applicable and scalable that they could tell us how to arrange our world in such a way that we get to be whole and free human beings, that we get to be more fully who we are. People misinterpreted it to thinking he was saying, I have the answer. And that's not what he was saying. He said, that's the challenge of behavioral science. And um, I believe that is the challenge of humanity itself. That's the journey we're on. And I want behavioral science to foster that and support that. Yeah, it's a beautiful question, a beautiful vision. Um, okay, question number five. So you've traveled a lot. You travel a lot, um, maybe interrupted by the pandemic, but What's one travel hack, meaning something you do when you travel or something you take with you to make that travel less painful or more enjoyable? Actually, I like to take, uh, even though it takes up a lot of space, uh, lounging clothes. I, I want warm socks, uh, comfortable athletic pants, and a, a comfortable, loose-fitting kind of athletic uh, shirt, usually a long sleeve because sometimes it's cold that it will allow me to um, sit in a hotel room or whatever and feel as though I'm at home with my feet up and I can, so I, I pack not just business clothes and the things people will see, I pack uh, comfortable lounging clothes and sometimes even slippers, but those are so big and bulky that I usually leave my favorite slippers behind. But yeah, that's, rest, a, like, that's an I indulgence, <laughs> right? Awesome. I don't know how many times I've been thankful for that, but it's often. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Question number six, what is one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I think this, Single biggest thing I've done is keep my values at the forefront. I have little signs. I've got triggers. I, and you do too. You know, I'm wearing a, a wedding ring. I, I lost my good one. And I bought this at, I think, Walmart because it's just a simple thing. But in the big diamond thing, I, I kind of lost and you have things like that. You have pictures of people you love. You know, my mother's picture is not far away. She's dead now. My wedding picture is right over there. Picture of my children of aged now 51 to 15, spread out in such a way that have been in my home for 50 years without a break in the developmental period when Stevie goes to college. And I have little rituals to remind myself of that. Um, I've said this a few times. My wife hasn't busted me, and I think it's because she doesn't watch these things. But, you know, I kiss this ring every morning, for example. Wow. And so even if she's been a pain in the ass last night, it doesn't matter. 
you know, this day is about me being the best husband and mate and partner that I can be. And the same true with my work and my children and the people that are served. And why does that help with aging? Well, you know, there's actually data on this that psychological flexibility skills, emotional openness, mindfulness, values, focus, you literally have longer telomeres. You know, your cells aren't, you know, aging as fast. It's literally true. Because the epigenetic up and down regulation of needless stress-related systems, some of which you came by honestly. You know, I'm a child of a person who was Jewish by the maternal line or half of her aunts and uncles dialed in ovens and her uh, aristocratic German father in the rise of German nationalism became a Nazi sympathizer and told her things like, don't tell people you have tainted blood. So she's got the epigenetic impact of the Holocaust and of a Nazi father. Think about it. I didn't find that out till I was 16 and I didn't find out that her mother committed suicide until two years ago. Wow. And so why do I make that point? Because, you know, I came into the world prepared for harshness. It's no wonder I developed panic disorder because my mother lived an incredibly harsh life, incredibly harsh, cruel, even though she had a loving uh, husband and wonderful, you know, loving family. So who knows? You don't even know why it's hard to be you. Some of it may be hard to be you because you've got epigenetic pet, uh, regulation of gene systems being passed down that had to do with your grandparents. Yeah. And if you can find a way to allow yourself to be open, to carry your history in a way that's not a burden, to show up to the present moment and focus on what's important and not sweat the small stuff, you wake up in the morning ready to go for that next day because it's wonderful that you get one more day to make a difference. And so I don't know, maybe it's not so, but it does feel as though people sort of usually look at me and uh, say, you're how old? And they're a little surprised. I'm turning 73 at my next birthday. And I'm looking forward to the projects that will last 20 years. So uh, we'll see. I'm around for Well, thank you. Question number seven. What's, what's one thing you wish every American knew? Oh, golly, you're part of a big world. And some of the stories we've been told are lies. Uh, America, the U.S., is a special place. But it's also a place with a dark history. We're here at the anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. We don't even know where the bodies are buried. They were hidden so fast. We don't know what happened to those businesses that were destroyed, not just the lives that were killed, but the theft of the land that happened. And, you know, a mayor who's talking positively, but saying no to reparations. And I'm going, really? Really? That you can go in and, I mean, Germany is still paying reparations to Jewish people. You know, so I don't know. I mean, I, 
when I travel in the world, I so much appreciate being American, but I also am afraid sometimes or shamed sometimes over how much we still have to do and how hard it is for us to really face the dark parts of our history and take responsibility for it and not just say, you know, South Africa should do that or Russia should do that or where that'll work in New Zealand or Canada, but not, not so much here. Yeah. And I, you know, I go to New Zealand and I look at and see how they treat their native peoples and I go, wow, this is so much more progressive. And yes, they did horrible things to the Maori, absolutely. But also they have a multicultural society, as we say we have, that is really respective of native peoples in in a way that we haven't even begun to think about. And the Supreme Court is saying, oh, by the way, they own most of Oklahoma. They do. What are you going to do about that? You know, so... You know, when you anyway, I don't want to go on a rant there, but uh, I would say appreciate what we have, but also show up to um, how much uh, we still have to do and how unfair some of the building that went on, uh, how it happened through slavery and capturing resources and so forth that uh, never have been looked at in a responsible way. Just just to pull on this a little bit longer, briefly, um, I have great hope and faith that the things you're teaching are exactly what will allow us to do that when you talk about avoidance and turning toward the monster, right? Which people who, I know they, that doesn't mean much now, but that idea of not turning from the cause of pain, because it never works. Yeah. Well, you take things like stigma and prejudice and all the things, places we've seen it from the Me Too gender uh, things to what we're seeing in terms of race and uh, class and, and ones we're not even talking about yet. Nobody's talking about attractivism, for example. The single most powerful demographic stigma that I know of, you can do ugly jokes to this day. Nobody will pull you aside. You can't do racial jokes anymore. You can't do ethnic jokes, jokes Even fat jokes are disappearing, but ugly jokes you can do. Oh. You know, so... Uh, you know, we've got, we've got a long way to go, but, you know, in that, those areas, when we looked at what's underneath all those different forms of prejudice and stigma, we found a single factor, authoritarian distancing, that explained all of it, number one. And it was explained by weakness and perspective taking. When you take perspective, weakness and empathy, or if you take perspective and ha- have empathy, inability to not avoid Uh, In other words, being open to the pain of seeing people when they're part of a a sexual minority or a racial minority or a a non-privileged group, to seeing the costs, the human costs. So uh, the psychological flexibility thing of this sense of self, which is linked not just to you, but to others, that mama's eyes moment is you in connection with others. Consciousness is social. This empathetic reaction that is just built in mirror neurons and all the rest that you have to almost work to not have. And then these suppressive avoidant processes that don't allow us to learn from our emotional connections, to see the pain of others. 
And that last one's most important because the camera, we're back here, will force the first two on you. When you saw that Syrian mama with her three-year-old bloated body on the beach because it fell out of the inflatable raft, that moment, the camera gave you perspective taking. Her tears gave you some kind of form that sort of looks like empathy, but you had to decide whether you're open to that and will take on that pain and do something about it that will turn that kind of acceptance into compassion. And nobody's training that other than the mental health people and a few wise cultural change people and the harshness that then comes that leads to people standing in front of school buses screaming at four-year-olds, get out, which actually happened in Arizona. Adult men and women stood and yelled at four-year-olds because they had the wrong skin color and came from the wrong place. You know, that, that last one, if it's not there, you know, what are we going to do when you can see pain and horror around you in the world? You're going to shut yourself down, objectify, and dehumanize. That's why it predicts all forms of prejudice, all forms. You become that rigid person who says, up and down, authoritarian distancing. I'm different, and I'm better, and I got to keep them down and out. So if that means yelling at school buses, I'll do it. Uh, yeah, you're going to pay with your longevity, with the softening of your heart, with your capacity to love and connect, because that emotional squeeze down is squeezing you down, dude. Hitler died an unhappy man. There's no way he didn't. So we put things into the world through science and technology without the behavioral and psychological supports we need to turn them into good instead of evil. And Psychological flexibility is a big chunk of that. I, I, I think that is true. Yeah. Okay. Coming down the stretch. Question number eight. What's the most important and useful thing you've learned about making relationships work? Well, there are these flexibility processes. And actually we have meta-analyses with like tens of thousands of relationships followed over time and what predicts them. And yeah, it's some of these same skills, but let me do it in a social way. I've learned I need to listen and not just speak. I've learned that when people close to me are sharing with me, they're not always asking me to solve their problems. They don't want instrumental advice. They want compassion and connection. They want to feel as though they're not alone. They want to know that they matter. Uh, they want to know that you're with them and that you will have their back. And that if there is something to do uh, in the world of behavior, that you'll take those steps. But they're usually not even usually asking for that. They're asking for your full psychological presence. And so... Um, that means sitting with discomfort, not being the, the one who knows the answers, not being the smart guy, not just letting your problem-solving mind get going. It means slowing down, showing up, and uh, hanging on to your values. And, you know, your, my wife will tell you that 
focus of my work on psychological rigidity and emotional avoidance came by it. I came by it naturally, not because I was great at it, but precisely because I wasn't. And uh, all the way to the point that I couldn't even hardly breathe and go to sleep and talk to five undergraduates. And I'm still on a journey of learning how to be better at being a loving person. And, uh, you know, I pray, even though maybe I'm an atheist, maybe I'm agnostic, that I still pray that if there's one thing I can have, it's to be a more loving person who's able to be that kind of person for others. Well, well, for what it's worth, I just want to reflect back to you that to me is very evident that, that that's something that you're committed to and, and that you strive for. So, okay. Final question in the enlightening lightning round. Um, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've uh, ever learned about money? Um, uh, Money's without money without values is a mockery. It's a torture. And um, if you don't have a clear vision of what it's for, and the for isn't something that is a choice that you have, not something you have to do, should do, must do, told to do, other people disappointed otherwise. If it isn't part of that values-based journey, uh it will mock every step you take. It'll hollow your life out. And um, I've been pretty good at avoiding money for a long time, in part for fear of it. My mother actually uh, feared it, I think. Uh, I've learned to be a little more comfortable with it, but it, is a challenge because you can really feel the pull for it to matter in and of itself. And it doesn't matter in and of itself. I mean, yes, of course, beyond a certain thing of being able to meet your basic needs, but that's the, the level of the average income of Bangladesh. I mean, it's so low that happiness and economics pivots across the nations at Bangladesh. I mean, that's pretty, <laughs> and then it's always predictive. Yeah. And within the lives of individuals, you can see it. You can see it around you. And so um, I love being around people who really have that clear, whether they're successful or not, because then money isn't as fearsome. And when you have it, you can do some good stuff. But I don't mean just giving it away in charity. I don't mean that. No, not at all. I mean, sometimes money can be used to build infrastructure about things that make a long-term difference that is values-based and the way you're using it, you know, like uh, if I can give you an example, you know, I'm really working hard or trying to build apps and supports for psychological flexibility that I can put into schools and workplaces and church groups and things like that. I'm working hard on that. Uh, and that takes money to do that. Uh, there's money to be made from it too, but, uh, that's down the road. Uh, so that doesn't look like writing a check to the multiple sclerosis society. My, my sister is 
bedridden with MS. And yeah, I, I write those checks, but I also work really hard about how we can do things like build the technological tools to be able to put some of the best of behavioral science into people's lives. So, and do it in a way that doesn't get captured by the pursuit of money. For example, where are the data housed so you don't accidentally do Facebook for evil instead of Facebook for good? You know, the, well, one of the things that modern era has told us, I mean, even Google no longer says uh, its mo- motto is to not do evil, right? Yeah. It eliminated that as a model because, as a motto because uh, it was a mockery because you can't do what Google is doing without doing evil. You can't. Yeah. Nor can Facebook because they weren't wise enough early enough with what could have been done uh, with the access to data about how eyeballs behave. Uh, but I'm not saying that to condemn anyone or, you know, that would take, have taken a lot of wisdom, but now that we have it, if you're interested in getting to that space, boy, you better think about it because uh, you know, money and success will produce its own momentum. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. Well, congratulations. You've survived the enlightening lightning round. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one thing as we leave it, I'll tell you, speaking of money, I have gone to Kiva.org, the micro lending site that supports entrepreneurs around the world. And I've made a hundred dollar micro loan to a woman in the Philippines named Janiza, who will use this money. She's actually going to use this money to buy a toilet for her family. So uh, she also does run um, a little general store in the Philippines. So uh, at any rate, get, thank you for giving me a reason to, to go make a loan uh, to someone. Awesome. And by the way, I won't make the interest on that. Assuming it gets repaid, it will actually be the people who facilitate the loan. So it's a virtuous cycle. I think it'll go support. Sure. sure that's awesome. And I, I kind of love that micro loan thing when it gets dialed in and it's really working. It really is such a wonderful example. Yeah, for sure. Well, if people, obviously people can find you, they can find your books on Amazon or hopefully at their local bookseller. Um, People can find you through a Google search, but are there any particular URLs, websites, social media handles that you would direct people who want to learn more from you or about you? If they want to follow my newsletters and things like that, I don't spam people and it's a one click opt out, but they can just go to my name.com, Stephen C. Stephen with a V, Miller, so C-H-A-Y-E-S, all one word, no period, stephencahays.com, and click on guest, please send it to me, and I'll send you a, uh, a newsletter that will have my blogs and links to podcasts like this, and about once a month. If you have any professional interests in psychological flexibility, and professional doesn't mean that you're a psychotherapist. It could mean you're a teacher, you're a coach, uh, you're a business person. Uh, you know, you're an OT, a PT, or you're doing anything where in your professional life or just in your life, but not as a patient, not that part. Um, you want to learn about psychological flexibility? Um, consider joining the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. We don't call it the Association for ACT because I don't care about ACT, really. What I care about is the science tradition that can do a better job of rising to the challenge of the human condition and, uh, you know, acquiring that process knowledge that gives people tools they can use that 
when you learn in one area, you can apply it to other areas. And that's ACBS. That's 10,000 people around the world. About 40,000 people have been members over its 16-year history, but it's one of the fastest growing behavioral science organizations in the world with 47 chapters and 25 different languages and some very large ones in uh, countries around the world, about half the members in North America. But you can join and we have values-based dues, meaning you pay what you think it's worth based on your ability to pay. So some people pay several hundred dollars and some people pay 12. 12 is the minimum because Elsevier has a free journal that comes with membership and they take most of that money. So, uh, But go to contextualscience.org. Whether you're a physical, medical, behavioral scientist, or just a person who uses that in some way, you'll find special interest groups and a really wonderful community that is accepting and non-judgmental, but values focused that will support you in learning about these processes and in, uh, in using them. And if I can mention one other thing, since I'm a science guy and I think science matters, just today we've posted our latest round of randomized trials. And um, it's so randomized trials aren't the be all and end all of science. They're not, but they're one good way of figuring out what works. And uh, if you go to a bit.ly link, does bit.ly all caps act RCT and then a small s, you'll see what we just posted today. We knew we were going past 500, so we made a big deal about it. We did a really careful look at what's out there, and we're now at 616 randomized trials. Wow. So you can go to that page and put in anything you're interested in pain, adolescence, uh, diabetes, anything, almost anything. And don't put it in the search term on the page. That searches the whole site. Put it in your web browser term search thing. So it searches that page. You'll see a study and a link to it uh, that'll allow you to work with your agencies, your business, your schools, your church group, your whatever, to begin to learn how to put these processes into people's lives. And the fellow travelers, the ones that are linked, uh, you know, the compassion-focused therapy people and the the rest of the mindfulness crew and, and so forth. So those are the two big ones awesome. I'd give you our, our professional group and my website. Very cool. Thank you. Well, if I know we're just at our time, but I wonder if you'd be willing to answer two questions related to writing and then we'll be done. Sure. Okay. Awesome. So the first question, and I'll tell you the second one so you can have it in mind as you answer. Um, but the first question is, what habits and routines do you have when it comes to writing that allow you to be so prolific? That's the first thing. Um, and the second thing is, what advice or encouragement would you give to those listening who are either they're on their own creative writing journeys, or it's a dream they've harbored for a long time to, to write and publish a book? Um, well, a couple things. Uh, one thing, writing is a skill, and the more you write, the more you write. The more you write better, the more you write better. Um, so don't overthink it. You know, the if you're wanting to be a writer, the time to start writing is today. Today. I mean, I don't care if you're writing the same sentence over and over again, like some sort of, you know, penalty of being in, in elementary school. At least it gets your typing moving or your fingers moving and you'll find 
that the page begins to speak to you. So that's one. If you want to be a writer, write a lot. Uh, my daughter just got her master's. She was in film and so forth, but she was at RISD, you know, the kind of the Ivy League version of, uh, of uh, film and, and school art school, but Rhode Island School of Design, but now has gotten a master's in creative writing and just won a wonderful uh, 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 kind of a fellowship at Colgate, you know, on route to becoming a teacher of creative writing. My daughter is a wonderful creative writer, Camille Hayes. My, my youngest is Esther Hayes, and uh, is working right now on a kind of a, a, a novel or another kind of autobiographical piece, uh, and have been in publishing. So I'm, I, I've lived in this world, and uh, I do know though that, that that's the most important thing. But the the things in terms of how I then. Uh, have been able to write a lot is I am the kind of person who does my best writing when other people are part of the process. So almost all of my publications, almost all my books, all my articles, et cetera, are, are with others. And I have regular meetings. We do outlines, we do drafts, we do shares, we have commitments because if I'm looking at my computer and I know I've got several things to do and I've always got, you know, Gmail that I can look at, et cetera, and write a post to the, you know, act for the public listserv. By the way, that's another link. If you want to find, if you're reading an act self-help, go to groups.io and search for act for the public. Wonderful group, 2000 people been going for 10 years. And I write some of my best stuff there actually. And then I send it to the guy who helps me with my blogs and that's how it turns into blogs. But um, just having other people knowing that over the next week, I think I hope to have that chapter done, those five pages done, that outline done makes all the difference uh, to me. And the discussion groups that I have when I'm writing a major piece, I have meetings every week. And often we're kind of looking at each other and we're not really sure. And in that case, I don't stop the meeting. We meet for the time we've said we're going to meet and we just talk. And so um, start writing now, but also uh, find something that supports you. Now, I don't do the every morning from, you know, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Other people do that. B.S. Skinner did that and wrote a lot of stuff. And I just can't. I'm a binge writer more. And so a lot of my books have been done this way. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll fly to be with you for two weeks. Give me a room. I won't dominate the family. Just give me a room and we can meet for two hours a day and put me in the basement and I'll come out with words. Wow. And I, at least of my 47 books, 15 have been written that way with Different one, people. two to three binges of seven to 14 days. Wow. How do you manage I've, that with your other, with your other responsibilities and your, and your family and your health? Yeah. My wife has to really tolerate it. Uh, I, I clear it the way I would a vacation. And usually there's enough arc on books. I don't do this as much with articles where you've got a year or whatever to do it. 
Um, and so I can schedule a week or two and, and then we'll see. And, and if it's being written with them, they're doing it too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even in a single seven day period, you might have most of a book written and that actually can happen. Mm-hmm. If it's really well thought out, you have those meetings, you have the outline, you've done some preliminary thing, you land it with your resources. And now, you know, that when you come out for that next meeting, here are the pages. And, uh, you know, if you're doing multitasking on Gmail, you're not going to be able to do it. When I wrote A Liberated Mind, it was a heavy lift because I I said, okay, 40 years of work, I'm going to write my life story plus my life's work plus the the self-help features that people can use it and a bit of the story of the science community. And I'm going to do it just myself. Well, actually, originally, I wasn't going to do it just myself. I was going to do it with John Cloud, who wrote the book, the article on time in 2006 that gave me my five minutes of fame. Uh a well-known uh, reporter for Time Magazine. and uh, But he ended up not being able to write it with me because of uh, some psychological things that showed up, and then he died. Wow. The psychological ones actually came because we asked reporters to do incredibly hard things like dash to Sandy Hook and knock on the doors and talk to parents within 24 hours of learning that their kindergartners have been machine gunned to death. Uh, or dash to the World Trade Center and look what a body looks like when it hits concrete at 250 miles an hour and they liquefy. John would call them puddle people. They turn into puddles. That's what happens. The bones literally liquefy at that speed. Uh, Why am I telling that story? I'm telling that story because uh, it's not very often for me to write a book on my own. I tried not to write this book on my own. And uh, the way that I got through it after uh, I couldn't write it with John anymore, and then he died during the writing, is I got a wonderful editor and took a lot of my advance and paid her to, to write it not write it with me, but to ride herd over me in such a way that I could. So that's just me. That's not everybody, but I'm enough of a, I'll do it tomorrow that I can't do the first thing I just said, start writing today without social help. Uh, I'm just a social guy and I just can't do it. Well, I can, but I don't. Yeah. That's all the way back to the very, very beginning of this conversation too, about environment. Right. So so I organize my environment so that I'm writing all the time and I'm headed into retirement now, but that's not going to change. And that one book a year thing will probably, if anything, uh, maybe even accelerate. Wow. Okay. So I know you just covered so much and a lot of that was uh, maybe could be classified as advice and things people could apply, but is there a final thought, final encouragement, final yeah. uh, help you would leave listeners with related to writing or anything else? Well, there would be, and I, and, I, and I want to say this in a way that doesn't get people into cul-de-sac. If you ask people, I bet you, and you're these questions that you've asked people, you know, what really keeps them going, et cetera, what advice they would give. They go back and meet themselves as a young person, what advice they give. And usually it's something like, you know, it's okay, follow your bliss. Some sort of thing that says, be you and let what you really care about be the center and the focus. The problem with that is that if I say that to young people, sometimes they say, I don't know what I care about. And it almost sounds like I'm saying to them, be selfish. 
So let me do it this way. When you're thinking about your writing or yourself in other ways for people who are listening to this for other purposes, do just a little trick of mind like this. Imagine that your life has unfolded spectacularly well and you're looking back at yourself now at this moment, knowing full well what's going on the inside because you know, it used to be you. And take a little time to actually picture that and picture what you're like now and what it might be like to have that poignant thing of being able to look back at yourself and see yourself sitting here with this hairdo, these clothes, these things, these conflicts, these conundrums, these fears, these inadequacies, the insecurities, these all of that. What do you think you might say to yourself of a wiser future as to really what's of importance for you here now? I sometimes do that in another way of picking a guide or a hero, taking a little time to imagine them looking at you and what might they say to you. You can do it that way if it's too weird to think that you will have a wiser future, that you will evolve, you will one day look back with some appreciation, but probably also with a sense of, oh, I wish I knew enough then to be able to say, and some of what you're about to say at that moment, you know now. You just don't know that you know it now. Yeah. So I'll amplify out this follow the bliss part of you to say, work on your own psychological skills to learn how to be a whole person inside your own skin with your history, your circumstances, but also with your aspirations, yearning, values, and caring. And what if your needs, your yearnings are valid? What if you belong here? What if you don't have to earn and prove that you're a whole human being? What if it's really okay to be you? And what if the challenge here is how to be more fully who you already are? And knowing that you don't just go like that and have a clarity of answer, would you be willing to walk into that place where you don't know and yet you have faith, faith from that original Latin root, fides, it meant fidelity that you have the fidelity with yourself to with fidelity, with confidence, not as an emotion, but as a leap of action, of a risk, leaping into the void and with the self-fidelity that you will be caught and carried by your own wholeness and caring. How do you want to take these next moments and what do you want to put on that page that's blank right now? if you're a writer. I hope that's helpful to folks. Yeah, I think it will be. I think it is. So thank you. Okay. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up now. Um, again, today, my guest, Stephen C. Hayes, book, A Liberated Mind, How to Pivot Toward What Matters. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Stephen, for being here. You're so generous with your, your time and your experience and your wisdom. I'm very grateful. Thank you, Brian. I'm, no, I'm not the first to say, and that was brilliant. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, 
unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.